Books say, she did this because. Life says, she did this. Books are where things are explained to you. Life is where things aren't. I'm not surprised some people prefer books. Books make sense of life. The only problem is that the lives they make sense of are other people's lives, never your own. In his Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, Wittgenstein writes, Proposition 5.1361 The events of the future cannot be inferred from those of the present. Superstition is the belief in the causal nexus. I'm like a runny, stinking macaroni cheese which you have to eat a lot of times before you develop a taste for it. You do finally get to like it, but only after it has made your stomach heave on countless occasions. I have a client who talks to me each week about his chronic pain, mainly physical pain. He has a fibromyalgia diagnosis, but also the pain which gets codified by us human creatures as emotional. There is, of course, a great amount of slippage between the two categories, the pain and his or my labelling of it, which emerges when I ask him, in a standard, even stereotypical way, to supply us with a corporeal reading of his profound sadness. He hunts around for a while inside himself, following my invitation, and in so doing, you notice how the human animal often has to pause in order to carry out this assessment, how different the domains of language and embodied experience or feeling really are, maybe even more so for men, I don't know. Perhaps it's like the difference between an unexpected slap to the face and those two spurts of language which might sandwich such a slap between them, the one somewhat ambiguous to our ears, the other deliciously mordant. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. <coughs> Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. The semantic vectors of this exchange can be picked over ad nauseum by us armchair semioticians, just as my client and I try to unpick for 20 minutes or so the term sadness that his mind, no different to mine, as well as to the supermind of language and culture in which we have both been formed, alights on this word sadness to denote his emotional response to periods of consciously experienced physical pain. The slap, in contrast, or the sting of a needle in one's arm, or even worse, into the genitals, that sharp thud to the back of an elbow or a toe, whichever way this physical recognition presents itself to the creature who perceives it, seems to exist in a wholly different experiential category than the word slap, or even the word sadness. The word is never the experience, and the experience is never the word, and yet here we sit, week on week, filling each other's ears with these things, but not always having healing experiences around the experience we're referring to. Plenty of words, though. Buzz, buzz, buzz. I don't look forward to our sessions, and I am always a little bit relieved when they are over. It is as much the tone of his voice that I find painful as the contents of it.
that sighing, poor me, woebegone lilt of chronic self-pity, which often matches our expressions of chronic pain, emotional or physical, as if to say, why? Still now, after all this time, now, still, continuing, after all this time, this semantic and embodied entity I call myself, appearing somehow to still be on this path and not that one. I asked for that and I got this. Or maybe I thought I was getting that and then I, I somehow got this. How unfair of life to be doing this to me, to my body, my thoughts, my emotions, my world. And it does seem unfair. A life where whatever manifests at a physical or emotional level appears to occur for him with the volume turned up to ten. And not just for him, for many of us. But in his case, it seems like we've gone as far as modern psychology and medicine can now take us in terms of dealing moment by moment with his pain, or rather what his mind and body are currently willing to do to deal moment by moment with his pain, all other factors taken into consideration. He is doing all of the stuff they, or indeed I, tell them, him, myself, to do in fibro self-help books, coping with it, more or less, as we all cope, more or less, with something we prefer not to have to cope with. But he is also wanting to recover from it, to use the language of illness. For if what he is experiencing is an illness, recovery must surely be the cure, right? He admits that the fibro is much more manageable than it has ever been before. But this will not stop him from continuing to be, week in and week out, deeply upset about his chronic condition. Of course, I would be upset too in his place. My role is to listen, to be there, to take in his upset, as well as upsetting narrative, and respond with a kind of setup, which is to say, with care, as well as resourceful probing. But if truth be told, I hate his pain as much as he does. I hate the pain for not getting with the palliative program we've devised for it, for continuing to talk about itself in snapshot terms that provide little nuance or novelty from session to session. It is always just the pain, pain here, pain there, presenting itself to us in a vocabulary of urgent paucity. Of course, I ask for more detailed descriptions in a bid to perhaps stimulate curiosity in those subtle moment-by-moment -moment shifts of sensation which we give the blanket p term pain to, just as if I was asking him to describe the moment-by-moment -moment shifts in being of his boyfriend who he lives with. But pain, like his boyfriend, for the most part, walks around with just one name and a set of distinguishing factors which remain fairly consistent to his eyes. If the word for this episode of the tarot cure is chronic, which I think it might be, I am first and foremost chronically bored with his pain, as maybe one day he too will become to some extent and so free from it, even if it is not free of him. Our compassion towards his pain, his and mine, is often performative, 
I am starting to feel like one of his parents, the parent who would tell their cheerful but hypersensitive child who cried at any given moment, cried when his sister got into trouble or when startled by a noise in the bushes, that maybe, darling, as much as I feel your pain, and unfortunately I do too, for it pains me to see you in pain, you might try crying a little bit less? Suggesting he might cry when he really, really had something to cry about is what his parents would suggest to him, as opposed to every time his nervous system became jangled. The pain of someone else's pain can often lead to a response that may register as indifference or even a kind of shutdown to the person on the receiving end of it. But is not a truly satisfactory response often an unfeasible fantasy anyway? Unless you're paying someone, like a therapist or some other clinical bod, to spend 50 minutes working out exactly how best to respond to you being in pain. That's a different story. But why should another human animal be good, whatever that means, at responding to our pain when we are all so crap, for the most part, at responding to our own suffering in any meaningful way? Why should we be any better at doing it for someone else, even if we are being paid to magically kindle in their minds and hearts a depth of philosophical acceptance and skillful coping that they, as well as we, truly need and can only partially acquire, it would seem, at any given moment. The judgment archetype is, I believe, a card that arises when one has done all the things we're supposed to do in response to emotional or physical pain, and still we feel tyrannized by it. It is thus one of the strongest forms of medicine in the major arcana, and for this reason we often see it as no medicine at all. For it requires us to consider, in the words of Marie Howe's poem, What the Silence Said, quote, What do you love more than what you imagine is your singular life? I'll repeat that. What do you love more than what you imagine is your singular life? She refines the idea as follows. Quote, are you willing to take your place in the forest again, to become loam and bark, to be a leaf falling from a great height, to be the worm who eats the leaf and the bird who eats the worm? Look at the sky. Are you willing to be the sky again? The poem then continues in a slightly more hectoring tone now, a tone I wish I could sometimes use with my clients, but they are not paying me to be preached at, so I consciously try not to, although I'm sure it escapes me at times. Quote, You think this lesson is too hard for you? You want, whatever it is you want, to end? You know the mind has been talking to you for so long. The mind that can explain everything? Don't listen. You were once a citizen of a country called I Don't Know. Remember the burning boat that brought you there? Climb in. Remember the burning boat that brought you to the country of I Don't Know? Climb in. Ha <laughs> ha. 
This is also the invitation on the card that lies towards the end of the major arcana, a card that denotes an important crossing over from one state or perspective, if we are talking about minds, and we are, to another. It is, declares Paul Foster Case, quote, the final state of personal consciousness, because that which is represented following it, the trump card of the major arcana, the world card, card 21, is a state wherein personal consciousness is wholly obliterated in a higher realization. Wow. Personal consciousness, this stuff we're swimming around in at the moment, wholly obliterated in a realization. All the gloopy water in the tank sucked out in an instant and replaced with a higher realization. The judgment is presumably then that pregnant moment just before the state of personal consciousness, this is me and these are my thoughts, just before this state gets zapped, elevated to a different state where someone is supposedly still fully aware of disturbing thoughts, unpleasant feelings, painful sensations, they don't go away, but without there being a self taking responsibility for this awareness, something like that. The non-self of impersonal consciousness isn't needing, we might say, any particular response from us other than an acknowledgement of what is currently being held in consciousness right now. Is that the promise of the final card in the major arcana to which the judgment card points? Not as in a binary judgment between right and wrong, free and imprisoned, but rather a judgment which acts more like a pivot, a kind of hinge on a door that got stuck at some point, but now is able to swing more skillfully or gracefully from one perception to the next. Climb in, or maybe even climb out. For perhaps the so-called elevated state of impersonal consciousness alluded to here is also quite a mundane thing at times. You may even be in this state right now, as I am in the activity of speaking, in my case, or listening in yours. There is no personal me at this very moment saying these words to you, even though writing and speaking is clearly related to that self who identifies as someone who writes, someone who thinks, someone who thinks through writing. But rather, in this case, at least right at this moment, the writing or the speaking is simply getting itself written, getting itself spoken. Just like for you, where the listening is happening, Maybe there have been moments in the last five minutes when listening was occurring, but without that parallel track running alongside it. That self-focused narrative about the kind of listener we are, or what's not working for us in this podcast, or whatever the parallel track is. All of it broadcasts 24-7 from radio selfhood, somewhere deep down within the default mode network. Perhaps at this very moment, you're just listening. Or remove the you. Listening is happening, or at least was happening, unselfconsciously, until I brought your self-ish attention to it. Sometimes we have 
access to these elevated states without having to get converted or therapized or magically transformed from one creature into another. Sometimes impersonal listening just happens, and we are very lucky when it does, for there is a real bliss to this way of being in the world, perhaps for the very reason that the listening is happening nowhere as such, to no one, and with no explicit purpose, but it is still occurring. The listening wants to be listening, even when listening to someone's funny little hobby horse, a.k.a. their podcast. Although we often speak to our clients through metaphor, we don't usually employ the preacher's call to spiritual arms, but maybe we should. For maybe that truly is the only game worth playing when all the other games have left us empty-handed. Again, the judgment card is, it would seem, pointing us in this direction. If only we might see a way of putting that into practice. One of the problems with pain is that we can never equate our own pain on any dimension to that of another. The only way that could happen is if I could literally do a mind-body swap with my client and experience his pain not through the often whiny voice that delivers it to me, but in the same unworded manner in which I experience that which I call my own pain, the stuff that supposedly belongs to me. I am in physical pain even now, writing these words this morning. But who is to say whether what I experience is at all on par with my client, or if it's more a question of how our systems filter physical and emotional pain, as well as the learnt behaviours triggered when pain sets in. Right now, I am aware of my agitated internal organs after immoderate quantities of food last night, not helped by 650 millilitres of ethanol-laded beer. Bira Moretti, if you're interested. A pretty crap beer, actually. Don't know why. Italians, not that great on beers, are they? My legs and buttocks are achy and numb from sitting, writing cross-legged on the floor for half an hour. Bowels irritable and unpleasant, even malevolent, it would seem, presence inhabiting swathes of my felt being. And all of it occurring in an extension of time, I would much rather have collapsed into a single slap. <coughs> but can't, for this feels chronic, from the Greek chronikos meaning of time, concerning time, the sensations appearing to persist to this self which keeps itself going through feeling, thought, language. Or rather, when I shift my attention away from one patch of pain to another and return back to the previous patch, it's clearly still there. Surely it didn't go away when I focused on a different patch of pain? Or did it? Because I do not identify as someone with a chronic pain condition, certainly not that of physical pain, I guess I don't get super caught up in the pain, perhaps also because when I do, it can soon feel too much and lead to a kind of overwhelm. But there is no time for overwhelm today, and so I continue writing, discounting or downplaying those unpleasant scratchy sensations in the body. The word chronic feels like a life sentence in itself. Sorry, mate, you've got this chronic thing right now, this chronic life issue. It sounds different to somebody saying that you've got this time thing to contend with, this life issue in time. 
especially in the time of narration, the time of language. Which in itself is a thorny issue, for what is time other than life's slapathon, the mind registering consecutively everything that gets delivered up to it in conscious awareness? Pleasant, neutral, or painful. Slap, 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 slap. Each slap contributing to this thing we call time, or at least our felt sense of it, when in fact there really is no time in the way that we perceive it. There is a slap, and there is our response to that slap. And then there is the narrative that gets built around this call and response, extending backwards and forwards in what we call time. But there really is just that momentary slap and then the immediate, maybe even instinctive response, which in itself is a slap. And then, like never-ending dominoes, the next moment is born, puffed up with responsiveness, unwilling to move on from the slap. This all gets chowed down as a virtual sandwich, which we call time, pastime reconfigured in the mind as a memory, as a novelist fills in the backstory of a character, and future time, that predictive force of the mind, unwilling to live now, without knowing first about what's going to happen next. And in so doing, we have to create this next moment, even before it has happened, as a future fantasy, or aspiration, or plan, or fear. Chronic seems to require some kind of extension, a yoking of past to present, as in, this is me suffering now from some fallout in my life, some rupture or setback, some calamity, and unlike the slap, continuing to suffer into the future, which is probably going to be the same as the now I'm experiencing now, this suffering moment, repeated identically ad infinitum. Future time, should really be called something less elegant, like the predictive creation of some repeating iteration of my present moment. The psychological algorithm that drives this experience seems to hinge on expectation. So if we were to render this as a semi-mathematical equation, it would look a bit like the following. An expectation minus Whatever disappointment we have in the moment towards that expectation being met in the future or not having been met in the past equals suffering in time. Let me repeat that. Expectation minus disappointment equals suffering in time. Or you could even say, expectation minus disappointment equals suffering, or expectation minus disappointment equals time. But I like to say, expectation minus disappointment equals suffering in time. Suffering itself seems to live on a steady diet of time. Pain is the slap, but suffering is the narrative built around the slap, and that can only be built in time, because any narrative must have some kind of chronic direction to it, suffering and storytelling inextricably linked, and then usually denoted through our shared lexus of emotional signifiers, sadness being my client's chosen term this week, although it could be anything that registers in the valence of suffering, frustration, despair, desperation, grief, take your pick, the menu, is a very full one. All these perceptions, all these signifiers seem to seep through experiential time like ink 
or some watercolour pigment permeating, soaking, bleeding, we might even say, into the paper onto which the experience is being applied. We then hold up this piece of paper and declare chronic and also sadness, as we may hold up a flower and say chronic and also flower. Although the flower doesn't seem to exist in time in the same way as sadness does. It just somehow exists, doesn't it? I always think of Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey, when I see the judgment card with its giant floating angel torso tooting their heraldic horn as coffins and caskets slide open and from them emerge men, women, children, grey from their long slumbering embrace with death, arms extended now in thanks and welcome for that higher realisation. Some of them, maybe all of them, knowing what needs to be done now, what this thing we call life fundamentally means and entails. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, writes Mary Oliver. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend your life, each voice, presumably from the culture, cries. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. If the judgment image we see before us on the tarot were hung in a gallery, the accompanying description affixed next to it on a small three by five inch card would simply quote the following verse from Corinthians. Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. The change that is being referred to here is perhaps similar to another watery scene, this time in Shakespeare's The Tempest, where Ariel does a little bit of exposure therapy on Ferdinand, playing with his fear that his father might be dead. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made, those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade but doth suffer a sea change. Which is to say, death or loss has been transformed by the alchemy of time and transformational suffering into something durable or at least aesthetically pleasing, the sea change having occurred as much on a narrative level as anywhere else, on the level of suffering. For suffering can only be a narrative, unlike the slap Everything changes, nothing changes. This is the nature of the transformation we're thinking about here. This is the sea change, perhaps the most gentle of redemptions, because it is happening, in this case, without our even knowing of it. Sally Nichols writes of these so-called redeemed souls on the judgment card in this way. Quote, 
When we redeem an article from a pawn shop, we buy back something of value which formerly belonged to us and which has been held hostage. Individuation is, in essence, a redemptive process. Its aim is not to create something entirely new, something beyond and foreign to ourselves, but rather simply to redeem and liberate aspects rightfully belonging to ourselves, which have been held hostage in the unconscious. In German, the verb to redeem is erlosen, literally to free from fixation. But freedom from, from fixation does not imply freedom from all cares and problems. Whenever we redeem something, we must pay a price. End quote. And who knows, maybe my client is not willing to pay the price yet for their redemption from this fixation on pain. Are you willing to be redeemed from your fixations at the moment to whatever it is that your mind can't let go of? Conceptually, perhaps. But if that redemption required a price, a price that you are not willing to pay, might fixation then seem like the only way forward, or not, as this is also a kind of stalemate with that tormenting entity we call pain, physical or emotional. But this truly is, in some form or another, a dead end. What might the price we don't want to pay be? Corinthians suggests we are exchanging in that final reckoning one suit of clothing for another. For this perishable nature we must put on the imperishable, and for this mortal nature we must put on immortality. Imperishable immortality is a suit of clothes made for playing the infinite game, one which transcends our brief participation in it. The infinite game of stand and stare, for example, which has no winner or loser, as in the finite game of no pain, some pain, there definitely is a winner and a loser there. If you're in pain, you're losing. If you're not in pain, you're winning. Surely, however it is done, we need to find a way to break out of this finite binary game of illness and recovery. For that is how we still talk about all of our pains, physical and emotional. As if getting ill and then recovering, and after that living in some kind of utopian pain-free dream, is what paying someone anything from 50 to 150 pounds a week to talk about our suffering self for 50 minutes will ultimately get us. The infinite game holds these finite and binary illness recovery positions within its embrace, but the process looks more like this. Getting ill, recovering, getting ill, recovering, getting ill, recovering, getting ill, recovering, getting ill, getting really ill, getting really ill, and dying. And even in that finite game, dying is only one tiny node in the life spectrum of everyone and everything. Also, like us, getting ill, recovering, getting ill, recovering, and dying in a perpetual swirl. Great, my client says, let's shift into the infinite game, for I feel my perishable mortal self all too heavily. Where is that imperishable, immortal perspective on my pain? Let me have it, give it to me. To which we, frustrating, shit-stirring shamans, reply, Ah, but, uh, can't actually supply you with the clothes myself, sorry. For it would seem that this particular attire 
needs to be fashioned, cut and sewn by the very person who is going to wear it. And maybe it can't actually be made here in the 50 minutes, the 50 moments, whatever these 50 things are that we have with each other every week. But only in those moments when wrestling or in conflict with the pain itself, that pain you talk about, refer to and sometimes even engage with in our time together. But perhaps I can interest you in some more discussions about these metaphysical garments, in finding something you might love in that line, truly love more than your singular chronic life, your singular chronic pain, your singular chronic fixations, some kind of vocational opening, like therapy, lots of clients pivot into becoming therapists themselves, right? Or at least some kind of higher power. More and more I think of it as that, something that requires us to be fully but impersonally alive, if only to serve it. It's a tough sell, so I'm careful how I go about selling it to others. And more often than not, I don't really sell it at all. Where should this music be? In the air or the earth? It sounds no more. And sure, it waits upon some god of the island. Sitting on a bank, weeping again the king my father's wreck, this music crept by me upon the waters, allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air. Thence I have followed it, or it hath drawn me rather. But tis gone. No.